And we are studying through the life of Jesus. And, and last week, after seven weeks, Jesus was actually born. So it took a while, but he's here now. He's been born. The incarnation, the Son of God, the glory of God in human form, it's absolutely amazing. He is here, and this week we're going to look at several interactions and events that happened during the first seven weeks of Jesus' life. And if, you, if you're a Christian here today, you know that the ultimate challenge of the Christian faith is walking by faith. It's living by faith. It's staying in a mindset of faith. We like to say it's not just believing in God, but it's believing God. That's really the great challenge because for each of us, uh, whenever we sin, whenever we stray from God, it really comes down to the fact that we believe at that moment, in that circumstance, that what we want to do is better than what God wants us to do. Even in that moment, it's a faith issue, and we believe that our decision, our will, is better than God's, and we trust ourselves more than we trust the will of God, and so we disobey God. Everything in the Christian life comes down to faith. Faith is everything. And we're going to meet some people today who are an incredible, incredible example of faith. Even after a long time of not seeing God answer their prayers or move from their perception in their life. So eight days after Jesus has been born, Mary and Joseph are required by Jewish law to take him to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised. So here's what we know. This is the first fill-in on your outline. Jesus is the only man to ever perfectly fulfill the law. He's the only man to ever perfectly fulfill the law. And when we talk about the law, we're talking about all of the commandments in the Old Testament. And one of the major purposes of all of those commands are to simply reveal to us that we can't possibly live up to the standards of God. If you read all the commands in the Old Testament and, and, and put them on a sheet, what you have is this is God saying, okay, if you want to try and be good enough on your own for me, here's what it looks like. And by the way, if you've already broken any of these, it's too late. So you would need to never violate any of these hundreds and hundreds of commands for your entire life, never violate them in thought, in emotion or in action, and then you'd be good enough for me. And when you put them all up there, you realize it's completely impossible for any normal human being to fulfill the law. And that's one of the purposes the law existed. And to help us understand what the holiness of God looks like. This is God saying, you want to know what it means to be pure? You want to know what it means to be holy? This is what it would look like in your life. Go for it. So it created a hopeless predicament for us. But the Bible says Jesus Christ is the only man to ever live a life in perfect accordance with all of the Old Testament law, which is why he's able to die on the cross in our place because he's a sinless sacrifice. And this is where we see this starting. Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day, and it might seem insignificant, but had he not been eight days in, he already would have failed to fulfill the law. So in keeping with Jesus being the only man to ever perfectly fulfill the law, he is circumcised on the eighth day. And every week I have this challenge, and the challenge is, how much do I share on the things we're studying? Because unbelievably, we could go the full 45 minutes just talking about the symbolism in the Old Testament of circumcision. But I didn't think many of you would be that stoked to share that with your friends. So, you know, what did you learn at church this Sunday? Funny you should ask, actually. Some fun facts for you. So we're not going to delve into all of that. If you want to do the research, you're welcome to do that. But I'm going to share one, one really interesting thing about why circumcision took place on the eighth day. This was the command that the Lord gave Moses. He said, write it down. 
Jewish boy is going to be circumcised on the eighth day. Why the eighth day? Here's what we know now through modern medicine. We know that vitamin K is a critical clotting element in human blood, but it's not formed in the body until somewhere between the fifth and seventh day that a child has been born. There's also material called prothrombin. I'm very proud that I learned that word. Prothrombin, which is also necessary. And on the third day, prothrombin is about... 30% of the level it needs to be at in the human body. On the eighth day, it peaks at 110%, and then it sort of levels down to 100% after that. So here's what's interesting. Between prothrombin and vitamin K in the human body, if you were going to medically say what would be the perfect time to circumcise a child so they didn't bleed to death, it would be on the eighth day. And God knew this and gave this command to Moses hundreds and hundreds of years before modern medicine actually caught up to that. So that's just something interesting you can throw out in conversation if you're ever discussing circumcision with your friends, which I'm sure happens all the time. So that's the only thing we're going to share about that today. But why did Moses know how to do that? How did he know to do that? And I love the fact that simply because God the designer says, hey Moses, just so you know, I've designed this to work this way. Do it my way. It's going to be better for you. And it's a small thing that is a reflection of one of the great truths of life, that everything in life has a design by God. And when we function in accordance with his design, things go well for us. Because God says, I've designed this to work a certain way. I've designed time and work and marriage and family and friendship and church All of those things, I've designed them to work a certain way. And if you'll just follow my design, it'll work. And this is just one small example of that. So let's jump back into our story. We have Joseph and Mary and Jesus. They make the short five-mile trip north to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's just up the road. And we're going to pick up our study in Luke 2.21. It says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is also the time when you're allowed to officially name your child on the eighth day uh, when they're circumcised. We know that the name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation or God is salvation. Jesus is actually, it's a shortened Greek form of the name Joshua or Jeshua, Yeshua, Yahshua. It's a shortened Greek form of that name. It was a really popular name at the time because Uh, Israel is being occupied by Rome, and so the idea of a Messiah is very appealing. So the name God is salvation, Jesus is salvation, people are naming their kids this because they're in a mindset of we need a Messiah to deliver us from the occupation of Rome in our land. So they're thinking we need a Messiah, we need a deliverer, they're naming their kids this. But this is also why maybe you've ever had the thought before of, why did anyone like pick up on the fact his name is Jesus Christ? Christ, you know, like wasn't that a clue that he was the Messiah? But it's a really, really common name, much like Jesus is still a common name in Latin America and Southern America. And if you said, I have a friend named Jesus in Brazil, nobody's going to go, seriously? He's your friend? So this is, there's nothing exceptional about the name that Jesus has given. And this is why nobody says, why did you name your son, you know, the Messiah who's going to save the world from their sins? It's a very, very common name. Nothing unusual about it at all. So after this, after the circumcision, they actually go back to Bethlehem in the sort of Christmas story timeline. And we know later on, Christmas buster alert right here, the wise men show up somewhere between a year and a half to two years after Jesus is born. 
And when they visit them, they visit them in Bethlehem. But this time, Scripture tells us that they're visiting them in a home. They're no longer in a stable. So they didn't spend two years in Bethlehem and, and like turn the lean-to that they were staying in on the night of Christ's birth into some sort of hipster loft or anything like that. They got a home. They're settling down a little bit in Bethlehem, deciding to put down roots. We can only speculate as to why, but, but I would imagine that after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph have the discussion, shall we go back to Nazareth? And they basically end up saying, well, why, why would we? So that everybody can point and laugh and talk behind our back. Story hasn't really spread to Bethlehem yet, probably. And so they think, you know, this is, a, this is an easier place to live. We can sort of start over. Uh, Nazareth is a five-day journey away. It's going to take a while before the news sort of reaches here. So they have the opportunity to start over. And so they're there in Bethlehem. So 33 days later, 40 days after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph and Jesus go back to the temple again. So this is 40 days after birth, just a five-mile journey north to Jerusalem for two more Jewish religious practices. You have the purification of Mary and the redemption of Jesus. And we're going to explain that. So after a woman gave birth, she was considered unclean for 40 days if she gave birth to a male, 80 days if she gave birth to a girl. Nice, right? Really classy. So for, uh, for 40 days, she's... Um, excuse me? Yeah, for if it was a male who was born, the, wo- the woman was considered unclean for 40 days. If it was a female, she was considered culturally unclean for 80 days, twice as long. So after that, she would need to go to the temple, and they would offer a sacrifice. It actually says in Leviticus of a lamb and a pigeon or a dove as part of their purification ritual. If a family was too poor to afford a lamb, they could offer a pair of doves or a, uh, a pair of pigeons. And this is what Mary's does. And so Mary's offering indicates that they were poor. It indicates they were poor. And this is one more thing to help you understand the timeline. They haven't yet received the financial blessing of the wise men's visit. Because when the wise men visit them, they bring them things that are actually valuable. And they probably actually use those resources to buy some things and improve their standing in life. Because when you're poor and someone gives you gold, you don't really put it up on the shelf and just admire it for the rest of your life. You tend to use it to improve your station in life. So they have not had any financial blessing yet. They're still poor. And they go to the temple to offer the purification sacrifice for Mary and to redeem Jesus. So when we talk about Jesus' redemption, we're talking about the Jewish religious practice that applied to every firstborn son 40 days after birth. And this is on your outline. It was a symbolic reminder of the time that Israel spent in slavery in Egypt. It was a symbolic reminder of the time that Israel spent in slavery in Egypt. You all remember the, the great classic story. The nation of Israel has been enslaved in Egypt God sends Moses to be a deliverer for them. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, turns water to blood, gives everybody boils. There's a plague of locusts. On and on and on it goes. Pharaoh just says, no, not having it, not having it. God says, okay, we're going to do one more. Warn him that if he doesn't let you go, I'm going to kill every single firstborn son in Egypt. Pharaoh does not relent. God gives the instructions to Moses Moses, tell every family to kill a lamb and to paint the blood of the lamb across the top of their doorpost. Then the angel of death comes through the country of Egypt. Every single firstborn child in the country dies except for those in the homes 
that have the blood of the lamb painted over their front door. And it's a powerful, powerful picture of the lamb and the blood of the lamb saving from the power of death. It's a prophetic picture of Christ. And so when they go to redeem the firstborn son on the 40th day, it's hearkening back to what happened in Egypt when God delivered them. And he's trying to help them remember this. And you'll find in scripture that there were many things that God has them do to remember things that he's done for them before. Because I don't know about you, but, but for me, I'm so good at forgetting what God has done in my life. I'm so good at forgetting. And so God, at certain points with the nation of Israel, put in ceremonies, he put in feasts, he put in laws to help them remember what he had done for them. And this was one of those things. God then specified after this, I'm sorry, let me get my order right. So this is hearkening back to Egypt. The other thing it's helping them to understand is that the firstborn of everything belongs to God. If, if, if you had a harvest, your first fruits would go to God in the temple. If you had a child, your firstborn son was considered as belonging to God. If someone in your flock of sheep or cows gave birth for the first time, that firstborn belonged to God and was sacrificed to God. So the idea is God's just saying with this, he's saying, by the way, everything really belongs to me but I'm just going to take the firstborn so that it's a reminder to you that it all belongs to me. And then within that, God says, okay, you know what? Well, I really don't need all of your sons to come work for me in the temple. So he takes one tribe. He takes the Levites, and he says, the Levites, their firstborn, they're going to come and serve me in the temple. They're going to minister before me. They're basically going to be the pastors, the ministers who take care of the tabernacle and later on the temple. But he would make every family go to the temple and pay a fee to redeem their son if their firstborn son wasn't a Levite. And that's supposed to trigger in their mind, hey, just remember, God really owns it all. It all belongs to him. And so the truth is, it was a fee of five shekels, and it's not like God is hard up for cash. And so God's like, man, you know what I need? Some income. That's what I need. That's not it at all. God put this in place to help them remember, hey, it really all belongs to me. And I'm only asking for this because I want you to remember that it really all belongs to me. And there's a couple of other reasons God has them pay the fee. And, th- and this is one of them. Firstly, it's, it's being honest. It's a practical revenue stream for the priests. So you have these Levites. God's called them to give their lives in service to him. Full time. So they, they have no other job. They're not making shoes on the side or anything like that or making jackets, you know, out of the skins of the animals after their sacrifice. They have no other income stream. So the five shekels would basically go to supporting their ability to live so that they could serve God. That's what they would do. You see other things in Old Testament law. That's where they got their food from. They were allowed a certain amount of any animal that was sacrificed to feed their families. So God uses this model as a way to provide for those who are in his service in the priesthood. Secondly, this is what's on your outline, is the reminder that the Lord really owns it all. He owns it all. And that concept continues today for us. Even when it comes to the issue of the tithe, one of the things it's supposed to do is remind us that God really owns it all. And I want to encourage you, one of the hardest things for me to remember that I have to fight to remember when I tithe and trust God with my finances is that I'm not giving my money to God. He really owns it all. And I really should be doing with all of it whatever he wants me to. And here's what I know. He asked me to do this with 10% of it. 
And one of the reasons he asked me to do that is to remember he owns it all. He owns it all. So every time someone would pay a redemption fee at the temple, they would be reminded of this truth. God owns it all. So every firstborn Jewish male who's non-Levite would be dedicated to the Lord and redeemed for five shekels 40 days after birth. Let's keep reading verse 22. It says, Now when the days of her purification, speaking of Mary, according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So while they're at the temple going through Mary's purification and Jesus's redemption ceremonies, they encounter a man named Simeon. Simeon is old. He's old. How old? Tradition holds he's around 113 years old. Dude is old. In verse 25, it says this, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So when it says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's waiting for the Messiah. He's waiting for the Savior. He has read the Old Testament scrolls, and he has perceived that there is a Messiah who's going to come and save Israel, bring salvation to Israel, and he's praying for that Savior, praying faithfully. And God loves Simeon. The reason God loves Simeon a little bit extra is because I believe Simeon is literally praying Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And it's easy to take the story of Simeon and say, he's been praying about something for a long time, and then he got his prayer answered, and that's an example for us on how we should keep praying for a long time. And there's something good there, but this is is something different. Simeon is not praying for anything for himself. He's praying that God's prophetic will would be accomplished. He's saying, God, come come quickly. He's read the scriptures and he's praying, God, I would love to see your will happen in my lifetime with my own eyes. So he's praying in perfect accordance with the will of God. God loves that. He's praying for God's will, not even his own will. This is what Simeon is doing. But not only that, he's been given a supernatural promise by God. In verse 26, it says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So God says, Simeon, I love you. I love your heart. I love the way you pray. I love your faithfulness. So here's what I'm going to do. You will see the Messiah with your own eyes before you die. I'm going to do that for you, Simeon, just because I love you. He has this promise from God, and one day he wakes up, and the Holy Spirit just tells him, go to the temple. Simeon says, okay, cool. So off he goes, and in verse 27 it says, so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And we, we read this like it's no big deal, but, but this is something significant that would seem a little weird to us. He wakes up one day, is quickened by the Holy Spirit telling him, go to the temple. That's all he knows. So he goes there, he gets there, and he's just, just hanging out at the temple, waiting to see what's going to happen, thinking, I wonder what's about to happen. He hears the Holy Spirit and he obeys. He doesn't talk himself out of it and say, oh, you know, it's probably just the pizza I had last night. I'll just ignore that. This is important. If we're going to be led by the Holy Spirit, we have to live in obedience to the Holy Spirit. If we're going to be led by the Holy Spirit, we have to live in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And I don't believe that this is an Old Testament 
or a New Testament phenomenon. This happens all the time now where the Holy Spirit will tell us, hey, hey, go here. Wait here. Stay here. Just go talk to that person. And so if we're going to be led by the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have to get used to obeying the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit functions almost like a, like a frequency. And here's what I've learned. If you repeatedly say no, you get very good at tuning out the frequency of the Holy Spirit. You get very good at tuning it out. You can't hear him anymore. But when you hone in on the Holy Spirit, when he quickens your heart, when he just asks you to do something and you say, okay, you start tuning into that frequency and you start hearing it more and more and more. And if we could be led by the Holy Spirit in our daily lives, there's no telling what we might see God do. We might see amazing things happen through very, very simple interactions and simple acts of obedience. Continuing in verse 27, it says, And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him, again we see here, according to the custom of the law. So again, fulfilling the law. He, Simeon, took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God. So, so Mary and Joseph walk in with Jesus. Holy Spirit says to Simeon, there he is. Simeon shimmies over there as much as he can at 113, grabs the baby, starts blessing God. Mary and Joseph are probably a little weirded out, but they get the sense that God is doing something. Because that would be weird if you came into church with a baby. Becca comes into the church with Sadie. Some random person walks up and grabs her and says, Hallelujah, this is the blessed child. That would be weird. That'd be weird. But they know that something is going on supernaturally here. And so they don't try to snatch the baby back from Simeon. And here's where we see it again in Simeon. He's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He's been praying for a Savior. And if you'd ask Simeon, what do you think the Savior's going to look like? What do you think God's work is going to look like in this instance? He probably would have told you the same thing that most Jews thought at the time. He would have said, well, probably going to be a, you know, a charismatic leader. Uh, who's going to sort of assemble people into a military force, and he's going to have the power of God with him, just like God was with Joshua, and, and he's going to lead us to overthrow Rome and, and bring us back to the glory days of, of King David, basically. That's what's going to happen. But he sees a baby instead, and Simeon is so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that in a minute, in a second, he's able to adjust his expectations and say, okay, Let's go see it. He doesn't say, no, there's no way it can be a baby. What a great example of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Because so often we pray for things. Maybe you're, you're praying for peace. You're praying for healing. You're praying for God to move a certain way in your life. And, and the truth is, you, you've already decided what God moving in that way is going to look like. I mean, you could write it down on paper and, and be like, hey, hey, God, let me save you some time. This is what it's going to look like when you answer my prayer. But being sensitive to the Holy Spirit means praying faithfully with perseverance and then giving the Holy Spirit and God the freedom that it may not look like what you think it would. God loves to work through ways that we can't even imagine. And God rarely takes us from point A to point B the way that we think he's going to. He has something far better, something far more complex. And that's also why no matter how imposing the distance between point A and point B looks in your life, between where you are and where you want to be, no matter how impossible that looks, God can get you there. He can get you there. But we have to trust that he's going to come up with the plan. And Simeon's able to readjust his expectations in a second. And then Simeon does what real prophets do. He tells Mary and Joseph the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He tells them the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because a real prophet functions in obedience. I was speaking about this this week with some people. Just He doesn't say any more than God has told him to say. He doesn't say anything less than what God has told him to say. Delivers God's message and is then done. Tells the whole truth, nothing but the truth, even if it puts their lives in danger. We see that again and again in the Old Testament. And so Simeon prophesies in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he tells Mary and Joseph the truth. And this is what he says, beginning. as Jesus in his arms, baby Jesus. And he says in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. I find this scene just so intensely emotional. The the most accurate translation of that verse is, Simeon says, now dismiss your slave in peace. Dismiss your slave in peace. And it all comes together in that moment for Simeon. He literally says, okay, I'm I'm ready to die now. What, What I find so incredible about this is Simeon has no idea how a baby is going to save God's people. He has no idea how a baby's going to bring salvation. He's already adjusted his expectations. He doesn't know how God's going to do it. He doesn't know the plan at all. But what he does is he takes one look at Jesus and he says, I've seen enough. I've seen enough. Jesus is here. That's all I need to know. He's going to do it. Jesus is here. Emmanuel. That is so moving because I want to be, I want to be more like Simeon. He, all he has is one look at Jesus, and he says, "God, God's got it." I probably would have been like, "Well, we need to get some guys with swords and like protect this baby and put it in a cave because what if like mom drops him? What if he like falls off the table when he's a toddler? Then like." This is a terrible plan, you know, like we've got to put this kid in a bubble for the next 10 years and make sure nothing happens to him. That's what I would do. I'd be freaking out, you know, like we've got to do something. Simeon just says, Jesus is here. The Savior's here. Okay, okay, he'll do it. It's an incredible, incredible approach that Simeon has in faith to God. This is the most important statement I believe you're going to hear today is just this. It's on your outline. One of the key expressions of faith in the life of the believer is living in active, expressive gratitude of the truth that if Jesus is with us, that's enough. One of the key expressions of faith in the life of the believer is living in active, expressive gratitude of the truth that if Jesus is with us, that's enough. What I mean when I say active and expressive is I mean we need, we need to pray it out. It needs to be part of our daily life. When we bring our problems to God, follow the, the pattern of even David in the Psalms where, where David lays out his situation. And, and if we think our situation's bleak, like, like read the Psalms. David problems, David's problems are like, I'm surrounded by people everywhere who want to kill me. I can't sleep at night. My life is literally falling apart. Did you get that, God? They literally want to kill me. I'm going to be dead by the end of the week if you don't do something. This is, this is how David prays, you know? And we're like, God, I had to delay my payment on my credit card. It's like, I, I just don't know if 
I just don't know if you can take care of me. David's got like real problems. And so he lays it out. He's miserable. He's in despair. And if you watch, David always brings it around at the end. He always throws out a but incredibly well. And he says, but you, but God, or but the Lord, is my salvation, the lifter of my head, a shield about me, strong tower, refuge in times of trouble. So when we say active, expressive gratitude in faith, what we're talking about is being honest to God about the problems in our lives, the issues, the aches, the stresses, the burdens that we're walking through and that we're carrying, but making sure that we're equally expressive about the truth that, but God, you're with me. You're with me, and that's enough. I know you're with me. I have no idea how you're going to do it. I have no idea how you can fix this. I have no idea how you're going to provide, but I know you're with me. That's enough. So I can lay my head down tonight and sleep well because you're with me. You're with me, and that's enough. Let's continue in verse 31. Simeon continues, he says, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. So Simeon has said, listen, your your child is going to bring salvation to Gentiles. It's going to be the glory of the nation of Israel. This is going to be amazing. He's going to save not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Everyone goes, wow. And then Simeon continues, says verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So that's a high and a low, right? You know, you go from your child is amazing, going to bring salvation and hope and healing. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. By by the way, uh, he's going to be destined for the fall and rising of many people. People are going to speak against him. And and Mary, just so you know, you're going to feel in the days and years to come like a sword has pierced your own soul. Congratulations. This is what Simeon shares. And we see the the shadow of death and pain and suffering hanging over the baby Jesus, hanging over him. And even before Mary is faced with the horror of watching her firstborn son die in front of her eyes on the cross, she has to deal with some intensely painful moments as a mother as it becomes clear that she does not own Jesus the way that most mothers own their sons. Imagine this as a mom. So as a child, Jesus is found in the temple, we're going to hear this in the next couple of weeks, discussing scripture with the priests. You know, the family's been in Jerusalem for a feast. They leave, find Jesus isn't with them, go back to look for him. There he is as a kid sitting down with the religious leaders and scholars of the day, talking to them like he's a peer, discussing the deep things of God. And Mary's like, you can't run off like that. And her own son looks at her and says, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? The implication being that his real father is not Mary's husband, Joseph. His real father is God in heaven. And Jesus is also saying, didn't you understand that my relationship with him is much more important than my relationship with you? 
It's good, it's right, it's godly, but that's hard to hear as a mom. That's very hard to hear. Then later on, Jesus would say while teaching, who is my mother and who are my brothers? The implication from Jesus being that, listen, you want to know who's my mother? And any, any mom who loves me and serves me, you want to know who my brothers are? Any, any men who follow me, that's who my family is. Jesus is saying, listen, they're as important to me as you are. That's hard to hear as a mom. And so Simeon is telling Mary, listen, get ready for some heartache. You're going to see the glory of God, but it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. There's going to be a price to pay for that. And Jesus, as we'll learn in the coming months, will so direct himself about the cost of following him. And this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus never said, follow me, it'll be easy, it'll make your life so much more efficient. It'll take away all your problems and it'll make you wealthy. Jesus says things like, hey, who builds a tower without first considering the cost? If someone doesn't consider the cost of the project they're about to undertake, they might not have the resources to finish it and they're going to look pretty stupid. It's paraphrasing what Jesus says. He says, before you commit your life to me, you need to consider what that's going to cost you. Consider it. Decide if you're willing to pay the price. Jesus says things implying that he's come to turn families against each other. He says, I've come to turn the son against the father, you know, the daughter against the mother, brother against brother. Jesus is saying, listen, there's going to be people where if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you your family. Your family's going to think you're out of your mind if you follow me. I follow a, a couple of organizations that work with the persecuted church around the world. There are places in the world where evangelism looks like this. They need to raise money to buy safe houses because if you make a decision to follow Christ, you don't go home that day. You walk away from your entire life and you go to a safe house because if you go home, you'll be dead. You go to a safe house and they figure out where you're going to go, what you're going to do next with the clothes on your back. That's what it means to follow Jesus in a place. Here's what I know about that place. I know that the pastor never has to preach commitment, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, you know, when, when you could die at any minute, nobody has to say, I don't know if your heart's in it. Have you counted the cost? But that's what Jesus says. Je- Jesus says, listen, count the cost, count the cost. Know it's going to cost you something. And in Simeon's prophecy over Jesus, he says to Mary, hey, you're going to see the glory of God through your son, but count the cost because there's going to be a cost. And Jesus always says that. Because he's basically saying, but I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I'm not asking you to sacrifice for something that's even here. If you had any idea what I'm really offering you, you'd understand that your life is a cheap price to pay for what I'm offering you. But he says, count the cost. Count the cost. Let's talk about Anna. This continues in verse 36. It says, now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So Anna's story, you you miss this a little bit in the verbiage, but here's what it's actually saying. Her life is marked by an enormous tragedy. She got married at a young age like most Jewish girls did. Her husband died seven years after they got married. 
seven years. She's been a widow for 84 years. By most accounts, she, she's around 103 to 105 years old. Been a widow for 84 years. And here's what hits me about Anna. She, she's the perfect picture of that person who has a life, everything's going to plan, and then suddenly tragedy strikes. And you find yourself thinking, this is not how the story is supposed to go. My husband's not supposed to die after seven years. I'm not supposed to be a widow with my entire life in front of me. And this is Anna, and she reaches this point. Many of us have gone through moments like this where we just have that overwhelming sense of this is not how how it's supposed to go. And in that moment, you're consistently faced with a choice of getting bitter or getting better. And Anna chooses, she chooses to become better. The modern equivalent today would be someone in our church losing their husband and having to rely on social welfare or any support she can get from the church just to live. She's a widow, no discernible job skills um, or anything. She's been supported by her husband. And so what does she do? She just helps her out, the church, any way she can. Replies to emails, answers the phone. And, and when there's no more work for her to do in the church, she just says, hey, do you mind if I just hang out and pray? That's what she does. She fasts and she prays. She's always at the temple. She throws herself into God and into a deep and profound relationship with God. So why does Anna get chosen by God? Why does she get singled out? I want to share three reasons we see in the text. The first is that Anna prayed to the Lord. She prayed to the Lord. And here's what you'll find as you study that text. You find that she had the same attitude that Simeon did. She was looking for the Messiah. She was looking for the Savior. She was praying for God's kingdom to come, fasting for her nation, fasting for her people, fasting for God to move, seeking the Lord. 84 years. God loves the heart of somebody who will pray. He loves the heart of somebody who will fast faithfully. Secondly, Anna looked for God. She lived in anticipation of the coming Messiah. She was always looking. At, she, had, she built her life around this question, what is God doing? What is God doing? What is God doing in conversations? What is God doing in people's lives? She'd be at the temple, and I, I'm confident that like Simeon, she's so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit was constantly saying, go, go talk to that person. Just go say hi to that person. You just imagine the sort of conversations, the sort of interactions that she has, spending that much time in prayer with the Lord. Thirdly, Anna talked about the Lord. She talked about the Lord, it says. Whenever people were talking about the Messiah in the temple or prophecy, like her ears perked up, and she was right there. I heard you mention Messiah. She would talk to them about it. As people were coming into the temple, leaving the temple, she'd just start talking to people, just saying, hey, are you, are you praying for the Messiah to come soon? Are you praying? She was holding on to that hope, constantly talking to people about it. And so if you find yourself in a place in life where your life is taking an unexpected twist, or you look at your life and you say, this, this is not how the story is supposed to go. This is not how I thought it would be. Remember that God's not done with you. He's not even close to done with you. The best part of Anna's life, the best part of her ministry was still to come. And here's what you need to know. Scripture never says everything happens for a reason. 
Do you know it's not anywhere in the Bible that everything happens for a reason? Neither is God helps those who help themselves. It's sort of one of those myths. The promise from God is that he can work good in any situation, in any tragedy. We live in a fallen world that is ruled by sin, and we feel the effects of that all the time. What God says is he says, listen, even when tragedy strikes, I'll pull something good out of it. I'll do something good in the middle of that. That's the promise of God. So, so God doesn't strike down Anna's husband because he wants her devoted to prayer. But when her husband dies, God moves in and says, Anna, I still got a plan for your life. You're not done yet. You won't believe what I've got planned. You've got a whole life ahead of you. In fact, the greatest moment of your life is 84 years away. That's how much I'm not done with you. That's how much this isn't over. You're trending up for the next 84 years, and you're going to see the Messiah with your own eyes. That's what happens in the life of Anna. And so the truth is that we should be, we should be the most at-peace people on the earth. As believers, that, that should really be one of the defining marks of us. It's not only love, but peace. We should be people who aren't troubled, who aren't stressed. Because we have a promise from God that if we'll seek him first, we don't even need to worry about tomorrow. We don't even need to worry about it. That, that's what God, God says. He says, seek me today. Don't even worry about tomorrow. And sometimes we pray and we say, God, I'm stressed. I'm carrying this. I just don't know what to do. Could you give me an answer? And I find that most of the time, God's already answered that prayer through Scripture. He said, sure, I'll answer. Just, just seek, seek me and don't worry about tomorrow. That's what I want you to do. God, but I, I need a 10-step plan of how you're going to get me through this so I can put it on my wall and know that you're working. God says, just, hey, just seek me and let it go. Let it go. Don't worry about tomorrow. And I noticed this. I was reading the Lord's Prayer and studying that this week. And do you notice that in the Lord's Prayer as well, Jesus tells us we should pray like this, and he says that we should pray for our daily bread. This day is what he says. And I find that so interesting. So in the Lord's Prayer and when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's saying today. Pray for today. Pray about today. I'll take care of tomorrow. And I really believe the reason for that is because (laughs) Jesus is saying, you don't need to worry about tomorrow because we're going to talk again tomorrow, right? I mean, we're going to have this conversation again tomorrow. You're not planning on just talking to me now and then not talking to me until next Sunday. We're going to talk again tomorrow morning, right? Okay, well, then we'll, we'll worry about tomorrow tomorrow. Let's just worry about today. So we should be the most at-peace people in the world because the God of the universe has told us, I got this. I got this. You don't need to worry about it. Just seek me today. I'll take care of it. And that's the invitation the Lord has given to each of us. And the question is, will we accept that invitation to let go of every stress, to let go of every burden, to let go of every concern and worry? Will we accept that invitation or will we say, God, God I, can't, I can't let this one go. can't let this one go. Simeon's experience with Jesus can be summed up this way. Simeon would say, you know, holding Jesus in my arms. I I haven't seen it all. I haven't seen the whole plan of God. I haven't seen it all, but I've seen enough. I haven't seen it all, but I've seen enough. And every single one of us that knows Jesus should be able to say the same thing. I, I haven't seen it all, 
but I've seen enough. I've seen enough of God in my life to know that he deserves my trust. I've seen enough of him in my life to know that I can rest and be at peace. I haven't seen it all, but I've seen enough. And so today the invitation is simply to rest in God. This is the radical truth. The radical truth is there's no reason for any of us to leave here today without being at peace, without having a deep sense of joy. And I'm not talking about a, a happy, clappy, sort of fake smile on your face joy. I'm talking about the kind of joy that is deep and has nothing to do with anything going on in your life. It's the joy that comes from knowing, hey, God's with me. He's with me. He holds my future. And I have joy because of that. And it's the kind of joy no one can take away. It's a kind of peace no one can take away. So God is giving us that invitation this morning. The only question is, will we accept it? Will we respond to it? So how do you respond to it? As we worship and as we pray, you give those things to God. Talk to them in your heart. Name them in your heart. There's communion available in the back. And the reason there's communion is so that you can take those elements as you pray. Bring them back to your seat. Remember what Jesus said. With his last breath on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's finished. He was talking about the war against sin, but he was also talking about striving, trying to fix things on our own. Jesus says, that's all finished. There's just me now. There's just me. All you need to be concerned with is me. I'll take care of everything else. So as we worship and as we pray in a few minutes, give those things to God. Pray like David did. Be, be honest about what you're scared about. Be honest about what you fear. Be honest about what you're nervous about, what you're anxious about. And then bring it around. And say, God, I don't even see how there's a way. But I know you're God. I know you're God. And I know you'll make a way. And so because I know you'll make a way, I can thank you right now. I can praise you right now because you're God and you'll make a way. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And and just the first thing I always want to do is just give an opportunity if there's anybody here who's never accepted the invitation to have Jesus come into your life to realize that it's not about anything you can do. That if you saw how good you had to be to be good enough for God, you'd you'd just give up. But it's because of Jesus. It's because of what he did on the cross. That he was good enough on your behalf. So when God the Father looks at you, He sees the goodness of Jesus if you'll accept his invitation to not only trust him with your issues, with your problems, but to trust him with your life and your eternity. If you've never done that, this is your opportunity to do that. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I just want to ask you to raise your hand so we we can talk for a minute after the service. If that's you, just raise your hand and let me know. I'm not going to point you out or anything. All right, and for the rest of us, let's just be still for a minute. And I just want to challenge you to, to really think about that question in your own life. Are there, there are things 
that are weighing you down? Are there things that are consuming your thoughts, your energies? Are there things that are stealing your joy, robbing you of your peace? And if you're honest, the real reason is that you haven't given them to the Lord or or maybe you just don't think God could get down into the details of your life in a real enough way to, to really make a difference in this situation. Whatever it is, Scripture says, cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. So just be honest with yourself. Bring those things to mind. If you're scared of something, let the Lord know. If you're anxious about something, let the Lord know. And then we're going to bring it around. And we're going to start thanking God that He's greater. Just spend a minute talking to the Lord right now.